Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. We hope you enjoy this week's message. A seminal moment in my life happened when I was 18 years old. I'm not quite sure why this stands out in my mind so clearly, but it does. I spent some time with a middle-aged man who was living a relatively, I guess I'd say, uneventful life. He'd experienced moderate success in a career centered on helping people. He had a nice wife and nice kids and a nice house. He was, in every respect, a good and decent man. I, I liked him a lot. One day, in a kind of dramatic way, he tried to offer me some life advice from his personal story. He said, Terry, I've never asked God for too much. I just told him I wanted a nice, quiet life and to be able to help a few people along the way. And I told God that I didn't want to suffer too much. And when I heard that and then heard him say, and that's exactly what I have, I knew that that wasn't what I wanted. I, I was only 18, but at that moment, I knew I wanted more. And I thought, even at that time, maybe instead of this guy telling God what he wanted, he should have a better sense of what might be on God's mind about what's possible for his life. Because I had a sense even then, without having spent the years living this out, studying this, teaching about it, I had a sense even then that God would be thinking more than that, that God would be thinking about what we now call more life than this guy had ever dreamed of. Now, I think that this good man would have said that he was blessed. And I don't want to judge someone else's motives or story, and I won't. I, but I would say that I believe that Scripture offers a much more expansive idea of what it truly looks like to live a blessed life. It seems to me, and I think I can show you this from Scripture, that being blessed is much more than living a nice, quiet, untroubled life. It's more about living a life filled with purpose and facing all the challenges that living out our purpose brings. Now, here's part of why I say this. It's because from the very beginning in Scripture, at, at our Genesis, blessing is found in the context of purpose. Now, last week, when uh, I opened this series, I began with uh, the first time that God ever interacted with human beings in the story of Scripture, the very first chapter of Genesis. You might remember that the first thing that happens after God created men and women is that he blessed them. And I focused on that last week. God's desire to bless us. It's found from the very beginning. It weaves its way all the way through Scripture. Over 500 times Old and New Testament, we find some variation of the word bless, blessed, blessing. 
It's clearly God's heart to bless us. But that's just part of the story. Because as soon as God blessed the man and woman, he then delineated to them his purpose for them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 through 28. God created mankind in his own image, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Note now, if you would, the action words here. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Note these big, expansive ideas in these two incredibly important verses. Let's just work our way through some of the concepts that are found in the words in these two passages. First of all, we're told that God created the man and the woman in his own image. I'm going to talk about the image part in a moment, but let's just talk about what does it mean when it says that God created. An eminent Old Testament scholar, John Walton, wrote that the essence of the Hebrew word for created, of course, Genesis was written in the Hebrew language, getting a sense of what words meant to those who were reading it in their native language, and, and the time in which it was written is, is very important. Uh, so Walton says that the essence of the Hebrew word for created concerns bringing heaven and earth into existence. I think that's pretty obvious. God created something out of basically nothing. He brought the heaven and earth into existence and then goes on to focus on the assignment of roles and functions. And then Walton later connects the assigning of roles and functions to the man and woman to the fixing of their destiny. So to create was more than just making the material world. What create also meant that when God made the man and woman, that he assigned them particular roles and functions, some of which are common to all of humanity. I mean, basically all of our lives are supposed to be about the same thing as it concerns God's plan for us. But then we also know that each of us are assigned in specificity, a role that we're supposed to play in this world and, and a function that we're supposed to fulfill in this world. And only when we do that, only when we do that are we then able to experience destiny fulfillment. So when we think about God creating, we have to get a bigger idea of what that means. And part of it has to do with the assignment that he gave people. Then the next part of the text, Genesis 1, 26, pardon me, 27 and 28, is that God blessed them. This is what we focused on last week, but I want to do it now kind of from a fresh perspective. God blessed them. So after assigning roles and functions and before detailing those roles and functions, God blessed the man and woman. He evidently spoke a blessing over them. I don't know exactly how that happened, but I like the word picture that the psalmist uh, paints when he talks about how overwhelmed he was by God blessing him. He wrote, you place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. 
We're not exactly sure what God said or did when he blessed Adam and Eve, but I like to imagine that he laid his hand on their heads and he spoke a blessing over them that somehow captured all that blessing comes to mean in Scripture. Last week I defined blessing in light of the unfolding concept of blessing from Genesis 1 through the end of Scripture. And I wrote that, I said that to be blessed is to be in a harmonious relationship with God who is for us and doing good in us, to us, and through us. Somehow, God conveyed the spirit of this blessing to Adam and Eve. It's like he stood there, put his hands on their head, if you please, and said, I love you. I am for you. I'm going to do good in you and to you and through you. And then he moves to the through you part in the rest of this text. By the way, uh, next week, I'm, I'm hoping, if anybody will come back, to speak on how to receive a blessing. And the following week, I intend to speak on how to give a blessing. And I'm, I'm going to talk about it about a lot of, in a lot of ways, but especially going to focus on parents giving a blessing to their children and the impact that makes in their life. We learn about this from God blessing the man and woman. But that's, that's not the end of the concept because then it goes on to God saying to the man and the woman what their purpose is. Now, I don't think this details the whole of human purpose, but I think it gives us a glimpse into what the heart of God was when he created man and woman in his image and gave them roles and functions. So look at some of the words, some of the verbiage, especially the verbs that are used in this text. God says to the man and woman who we just created, just blessed, he said, be fruitful. Now, clearly this spoke in specificity to procreation, but I think that we can extrapolate a broader principle for all of humanity. There are a number of ways that that Hebrew word translated in this translation, be fruitful, is uh, translated throughout scripture and in, in the Hebrew language. Here are some of the words. It kind of gives you a bigger picture, I think. So be fruitful can also be translated, be productive. God's saying, I expect you to produce people and things. It can also be translated, be increased. It can be translated, grow, branch off, flourish, produce a harvest, abundance. The idea is that not only are they supposed to be, produce, uh, be producing, but they're supposed to be producing a lot, not less, more. The next action word is Increase. God says be fruitful and increase in number. Other translations of the original here, become great, become many, become much, multiply in numbers. The next, God then says fill the earth. Other translations have it like this, fill the capacity, replenish. Theologians will debate whether or not the earth was in a state where, where there had been something that now there wasn't, and perhaps humanity was supposed to get back what was lost. There is some idea of this conveyed here. I'm not quite sure what I think about it, but nonetheless, God is saying, uh, replenish the earth. And another way to say it is finish it. It's like God was saying, I want you to finish what I started. Some of you have heard me teach this many times, but 
God wasn't finished when he, at this moment in history. He now has created partners in his ongoing creative activity. He has now put people on the earth to do what he wants to accomplish in the earth. He's going to now do it through them. Then he says, subdue it, subdue the earth. Other translations, bring into subjection. Remember, guys, outside of the Garden of Eden, the, world, the, the earth was wild. It was uncultivated. This is pretty clear from a reading of Genesis chapter 2. Eden seems to be the only place on the whole planet that was cultivated. Outside of Eden was a wilderness. What God is saying to the man and woman, not only do I want you here in Eden, but now I want you from Eden to subdue the whole earth. Bring it into subjection. Keep it under subjection is another way of saying it. Overcome, conquer and control the environment. And then the next word and final word in this Genesis 1, 27 through 28 passage, God says, rule. He says, other translations, have dominion, govern, direct, to which I would just ask, did God expect for the human beings to be dominated by the world or to rule the world? Well, it's very clear his intention was for them to rule. This is part of why I say then that I believe that blessing is inextricably connected to an expansive idea of what our lives should be about. Did anybody here in anything I just said, anything that would indicate nice, little, ordinary, Small, connected with this idea of God blessing humanity? Or did you see another picture that's pretty apparent? It's a pretty big eye. God blessed them and didn't, didn't just say, hey, hang out in the garden and have fun. Blessing is not supposed to be understood in that light. So we know that Adam's blessing then was um, not only clearly offered in light of purpose, but it got messed up because of Adam and Eve's choice. We know about the fall, and we know that, that God gave the man and woman, and woman a choice as to whether or not to live in that extent of the blessing and to do the things they were created to do in its full realization. We know that. And so we, we, we know that, that the man and the woman got lost to some extent, but that God started a redemption project to bring humanity back to what he'd planned in the beginning. And when Jesus came, Jesus didn't just come to reconcile us to God in relationship, he also came to restore us to our purpose. You see this in obvious ways in the New Testament, post-Jesus, when, for instance, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 5, 17, for if by the trespass of the one man, he's talking now about Adam, the choice that Adam made not to do things God's way, but to do things his own way, this was a trespass, for if by the trespass of Adam, death reigned through that one man, how, if, if what Adam did messed everything up, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, notice this language, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
Always remember that Jesus came to undo the damage Adam did and to bring us back to the full realization of our humanity. Here's one way. Adam was made and Eve was made to rule on the earth. Well, Jesus came to help us reign in life be a pretty good thing to test yourself and ask the question do i feel like i'm reigning in life or is life kicking my backside through jesus we should live with certain expectations of what our life should look like now Try not to yell yet. A really important moment in history as it concerns God's plan to redeem humanity and bring us back to what he wanted in the beginning was when he began, and we're told about it in Genesis chapter 12, when he began a redemption project by, for whatever reason, choosing out of everybody in the world a guy named Abraham, he was named Abram, name was changed to Abraham, who God said he would bless and give a land and through whom God said he would bless the entire world. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, of course, was Jesus who brings all of us who believe in Jesus into the blessing of Abraham. But I want you to see how the blessing given to Abraham was offered in the context of purpose. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your... Here's how God shows up. This is the first thing that's ever said to Abram or Abraham. The Lord said, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then he offers... The blessing that's so famous, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Note these words now in verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. God just didn't show up one day and say to Abraham, we talk about the blessing of Abraham. He didn't just show up one day and say, Abraham, I want to bless you, 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 which I hope that you'll hear come out of my mouth a lot the next few weeks because, in fact, that's what God's saying to us. I want to bless you, I want to bless you, I want to bless you, I want to bless you. But he's offering that blessing in a particular context. First of all, he says to Abraham, Abraham, I have a work for you to do. Abraham, I have a purpose for you. I want you to leave where you're comfortable and I want you to go someplace you don't even know where it's at yet. I'm going to show you when the time comes to show you. And Abram leaves one of the most sophisticated cities in the world, Ur, in Mesopotamia. The, the, the ruins of it are in Iraq now. It was like the New York City or the London or the Tokyo of the ancient world. God tells Abraham to leave that place and to go into what at that time was pretty much a barren place. Palestine, now Israel. Uh, uh, the, the Canaan land. This is, this is what God said to Abraham. Before God said, I will bless you, he said, I got something for you to do. And when God said, I want to bless you, I want to bless you, I want to bless you, it was while Abraham was packing his bags to go do what God had called him to do. Do you get my point? So when you look at Genesis chapter 24, verse 1, which I talked about last week, it's a wonderful scripture. You look at Abraham at the end of his life, and it says Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. Don't think that means, 
Well, he lived a nice, quiet little life. And he just kind of hung out in a nice little house. His job got paid well, got he went on vacations. He, he, his retirement package was just a Abraham was blessed in every way. This is not what blessing means in the scope of scripture. Abraham was blessed in every way in the context of going in a crazy direction in his life as a result of a call of God that he felt. So we are blessed, I would posit, so that we can advance God's purposes in this world. So when you read the beautiful passage that's so profoundly important, where Paul wrote to the Galatians and said that Jesus redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Don't just think, well, Abraham was rich and Abraham had a, had a beautiful home and Abraham had a, a nice wife who laughed at the promises of God, but things worked out anyway. And Abraham, don't just think about that. It doesn't mean those things aren't in fact true. It just means those things happened in light of a much bigger story of Abraham being involved with what God was doing in the world. Last week, uh, <laughs> is Maria Rice Bellamy here? Dr. Maria Rice Bellamy, one of our elders, uh, she's listened to me preach for what, probably 25 years? 23? 23 years, it's plenty long enough, actually. She's hardly missed a Sunday except when she's on vacation. And so she's heard me preach hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. She, she came up to me last week after the message and said, she said something nice about it. And then she said, you, you gave a totally new message today. It was all new. Now I've been away studying for four or five weeks, right? And so this is what you call a classic backhanded compliment. It was all new. Well, Maria, I don't want to disappoint you today, but I do have a whole new perspective on the idea of blessing. I've never taught what I'm teaching before in this regard, and frankly, I've never heard anyone else teach it and never read about it. I've just kind of been thinking a lot about this, uh, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about things in one way that I've talked about many, many times. Maria, you've heard some of this before, but through the lens of blessing. Because, you know, this is basically, if you please, this is kind of my message. This is what we talk about here when we talk about living the life that God dreams for us, the TLCC mission. I want you to see how doing that is inextricably connected to the real view of living a blessed life. So with this in mind, three words that connect blessing to purpose. Here's the first one. It's image. Image. So I'll just check on everybody. Is everybody doing okay? You doing all right? Are you? One other, one little side note. I shouldn't, I don't have time to blather around, but I will a little bit anyway. I just mentioned this. I mentioned this at nine o'clock. So one of the things that, that we hear every once in a while is people say that it's cold in here. 
And so we've made a decision in recent weeks that we're playing with the temperature to get it uh, to a place where it's not uncomfortable for people. It's very important to me that you're comfortable. But I, but I just want to mention this. Do you see me up here sweating? And all I want to know is, are you happy now? Just, you know, don't, don't bring a little thing to put over your shoulders. Don't. Don't wear more clothing. Don't do that. Don't do that. I will bear the burden for you. And so when you bring a guest and you're embarrassed that I'm up here, you know I'm always going to be passionate and I'm always going to be walking around, and I'm up here with sweat pouring off my already slick bald head. Just look at your guest and say, hey, that's my fault, not me, yours. All right. Just wanted to get that straight. <laughs> oh, God have mercy. All right, some of you kind of new around here, you have no idea, is this guy really kind of narcissistic and sick? <laughs> well, I hope not. I am kidding for the most part. All right, image, image. Scripture says that God created the man and woman in his image. John Walton, who I refer to a lot because though I've read a lot of stuff, uh, scholarly stuff on Genesis. I just love his work. Uh, John Walton wrote that being made in the image of God confers on us dignity, entrusts us with responsibility, and implants in us a certain potential, namely the capacity to mirror our Creator. As Christians, our redemption has greatly enhanced this capacity. He mentions three ideas here. He says part of being created in the image of God is that we have dignity. Every human being was created in the image of God, and therefore we have inherent worth. Whether someone believes in Jesus or doesn't believe in Jesus, every one of us was created in the image of God, and we have inherent worth. It's so important that we treat everybody in this world, those with whom we disagree, those we don't understand, and so on. Everyone always must be treated as a human being created in the image of God. So first of all, because we're created in the image of God, we have inherent worth. We have dignity. I think we all get that. But secondly, we have responsibility. Is the definition still behind me? We have responsibility. That means that we're not, we don't just have dignity. That's not all that being created in God's image means. We also have responsibility. I've alluded to this already. I will again. We have all been given a, a role to play in this world. We have functions. We have work to do. And, and this, is, this, is, this is essential to understanding what it means to be created in the image of God. Thirdly, though, we also have great potential. Or another way Walton says it here, is capacity, the capacity to mirror our creator into this world. Some people talk about human potential in ways that I agree with, and some people talk about it in ways that I don't agree with, but the fact of the matter is, if properly understood, we have tremendous potential as human beings because we were created in the image of God. So not only do we have great worth and not only do we have important responsibility, but we actually have the potential to do what we were created to do. We actually can do what we were made to do. Uh, someone else I've enjoyed reading over the years, I actually wrote about this a little bit in my first book, Live 10, is the work of James Sire. And James Sire said, I think profoundly, that human beings are created in the image of God and thus possess personality, self-transcendence, intelligence, morality, gregariousness, 
and creativity. I don't have time to get into each of those qualities. I just want to focus on two. These are qualities that we have as a result of being created in God's image. In other words, we have, we are born with God-like qualities. That doesn't mean we're little gods. We're not. We're human beings. But, 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 but we are created with qualities that reflect who God is. It speaks to our potential, uh, most of which none of us are fully living up to. Two important concepts here for me in light of what I'm saying today is the concept of self-transcendence and the concept of creativity. So, theologians say that God is transcendent and imminent. When we talk about God being transcendent, we're saying that God is outside of the created world, that he is beyond it, that he is the causer of it. If you were able somehow to map out the universe, and most of us have probably seen these someplace in a planetarium or something, if you were to map out the universe and draw a circle around everything that we know that exists, God is outside of that circle. He is transcendent. But theologians say, thankfully, he's not only transcendent, he's also imminent, which means that he decided to show up in the circle and to do something about what was messed up in the circle. Okay? What does that have to do with us? Well, part of being created in the image of God is that we have self-transcendence which means that we can enter into things and make an impact on them in ways beyond what most of us might typically understand. There are a lot of people, even Christians, who live in very fatalistic ways. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Things are just as they are. There is nothing we can do about it. We are not rulers in life, we are ruled by life. We are not subduers, subjectors, difference makers. We are just poor little human beings who are hopeless and can make no difference in this world. But the reality is, and I've taught about it many times over the years, we in fact can impact more things than we give ourselves or in fact God who created us in his image credit for we are not victims of life now there are things in this world we don't have control over okay but there are many things that in fact we could impact if we would draw a circle around that thing and decide to enter it in order to make a difference there and we especially have a lot more ability to impact our own person than we often acknowledge. Scripture, in fact, tells us that part of the fruit of the Spirit is that we are to practice self-control. There are some people who just act like, well, I have no control over myself. I have no control over my uh, addiction. I have no control over my uh, food. I have no control over, I have no control, I have no control over my temper. I have, as if that's just the way life is. We are just victims. Listen, God didn't create that. Adam and Eve to be ruled by everything in this world. He created them to show up and to shape things in the environment around them. 
And we probably each have, I know I certainly do, areas of my own person I need to draw a circle around and say, I, as a self-transcendent human being, can enter this thing and make a difference. And we have neighborhoods we drive by every day that we know are troubled, and we just probably say in our minds, I guess that's just the way it is. There's just, it's so sad. There's just nothing that can be done. When instead, we need to be drawing a circle around that thing and entering the thing and making a difference there. So when we talk about being self-transcendent, we're saying that one of the God-like qualities that we've been given, that we can only use in limited measure because we're not God, and we need God to help us do this, these things in his way, all right? But, but, but we can impact things that already exist. But not only that, we also are creative. The creator created us to be creative. To be creative means, at least in part, that we have the ability to create things that do not yet exist. We can practice transcendence, meaning we can impact things that already exist. But not only that, we can create new realities. I've taught this in past years and had people go start charter schools and go have people start ministries of the poor and had people do all kind of crazy things because they started thinking, I've been just accepting the way things are. Hey, listen, one of the great sins of life is to accept things to which we should take exception. And so we need to understand that part of being created in God's image is that we actually have the capacity to impact on the world in a way that reflects God's glory. Now, the God image was damaged through the fall, through sin, you know, the general concept and reality of sin and then our own. The God, dam- the, 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 the God image was damaged, but it doesn't mean it isn't there. And part of what happens when we believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, grow in our relationship with Jesus, the damaged God image is repaired. You see passages like 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says, and we all who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. We should expect that part of our relationship with Jesus isn't just, you know, we're going to believe in Jesus and hopefully survive until the second coming and get out of this world. That's really not our primary purpose, guys. It's not even close to our primary purpose. It's going to happen. Thank God for it. We have an eternal hope. But, but God's still actively involved in this world now. And he needs, if you please, as much as God can need, which he really can't, but understand the way I'm saying this. He needs you to fulfill your role, to play your, to fulfill your function in this world. He needs you to bear his image in this world. The time Genesis was written, one of the most, uh, a, a, a cultivation that had already uh, been, uh, 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 pardon me, a civilization that w- had already been well-established and, and was very advanced was the Mesopotamian uh, civilization. And part of Genesis is written to respond, as I taught last week, to some of the false narratives about creation and, and how it happened and what it meant. Uh, but, but one of the things that is probably going on as the, 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 the God-inspired writer of Genesis is writing about being created in the image of God is that Mesopotamian kings, when they wanted to establish their authority someplace, they would put images of themselves in a place so as to represent them and to show their authority. Well, all of us are God images, if you please. When you walk to your job in Wall Street, you must represent 
See, God's plan for the world is about you bearing his image, reflecting his glory to the world. You have a calling to do this, you have a responsibility to do this, and you have the potential to do this. You can do this by God's grace. Brings me to the second word, which is vocation. By the way, if you want a shorter version of my sermons, you have to come at nine o'clock. I don't know why it is. 11 o'clock, it's an automatic add-on of five minutes. Honestly, I've preached for, I don't know how many years, long time, almost 40 years. It was 40 years. I started preaching when I was 16. And you'd think I'd figure out where the extra five minutes came from, and I don't know. I'm a victim of my, I have no control. Oh boy, I'm going to preach to myself this week. Here's the second word, it's vocation. And when I talk about vocation here, I'm not talking about your job, though I've used that term in that way today and probably will again. When I talk about vocation here, I'm talking about the work God created us for. It's a technical term that gets used in theology. It's the term vocation. What is humanity's vocation? And, uh, and as I've said, we each have specific assignments in line with God's purposes for all of humanity. Part of being an image bearer is to act on God's behalf in this world. We are supposed to do his work here, to produce, to increase, to finish what he started, to subdue evil, to bring God's authority, to rule. All of us have to figure out what that looks like in our own lives. And one way that I love to describe this is that we all have to figure out in our own lives how to care about what God cares about and how to work on what God is working on. Each of us have a different way to live that out. For some of us, our job or career path has direct implications. Thankfully, I have a job where I'm able to get up every day and and hopefully um, there are explicit ways that I get to work on what God's working on, right? But but this isn't limited to people in full-time ministry or the helping uh, uh, professions, not by any stretch of the imagination. I'm telling you, if you work on Wall Street, I'm telling you, if you're running a construction company, I'm telling you that if uh, uh, if you're a psychiatrist, I'm telling you that if you're doing whatever you're doing, you have to figure out how what you're doing is is somehow expressing what God cares about and what he's working on. You got to figure that out for yourselves, but we have to figure it out. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 tells us that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And then a little later in the chapter it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, and I love this phrase, to work it and take care of it. I ask each of us this question, where in your life are you caring about what God cares about and working on what he's working on? Somehow, all of our lives have to be organized around this principle. If you're a business owner, you're thinking about how your business serves the greater cause. Maybe it's the way that you do ministry service. Maybe it's the way that you're plugged into the local church, the way you're doing missions, the way that if you're accumulating wealth. Maybe it has to do the way that you're using wealth to advance God's kingdom through the local church. 
church and in other ways. I'm saying all of us have to be able to figure that out. How are we caring about what God cares about? How are we working on what God is working on? And then how are we making more of that? Adam and Eve weren't just supposed to stay in Eden. They were supposed to spread the beauty of the of Eden to the entire uncultivated planet. They were supposed to work and care for what God worked and cared about and then notice notice increase, produce, subdue, rule. There's supposed to be more of it going on, not less of it. And then the third word is the word adventure. You say, Pastor, what, what, no, no, let me just bring you back to why I think this is so important and why I hope I'm offering this from a posture of caring for you. Here, here, here it is, guys. I want you to be blessed. See? What, what, what's, what's my agenda here? Here's my agenda today. I want you to be blessed. That's it. Okay? That's what will make me happy today. And I'm saying to you that God's blessing in your life is directly connected to you living out your God-given purpose. So we've got to get that right. Here's the third thing then, it's adventure. Adventure. I love to talk about adventure. I've been thinking about it for whatever reason, a lot the last month or so. Um, probably the best way I've ever heard this described, pardon me, Maria, I'm sorry, I've used this before, a time or two. And uh, uh, so you don't have to say anything to me after today's message. It's new, it's just a new approach, you understand, to things I've said before, my dear professor, friend. Uh, all right. It's Tolkien writing in The Hobbit, and he has this godlike figure, Gandalf, you've heard me say it before, show up to the home of this hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, and say, I am looking for someone to share in an adventure that I am arranging, and it's very difficult to find anyone, to which Baggins says, I should think so. In these parts, we are playing quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them. And then later he says, we don't want any adventures here, thank you. You might try over the hill or across the water. Well, I've been reading The Hobbit the last month uh, for light reading, and uh, over the hill, across the water, was where, was where uh, Bilbo Baggins' uh, mother's family lived. They, they were, they were the, the, the Tooks. The, the Tooks were people who went on an adventure every now and then, says Tolkien. And, and Baggins says, if you want to find somebody to go on an adventure, go across the water to, to the hill because the, 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 the Tooks are over there. But, but don't come disturbing my nice, little, quiet, blessed life. And then if you saw the movie or read the book, the dwarves show up with Gandalf and they begin to sing. And as they begin to sing, something Tukish woke up inside of Bilbo Baggins and he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls and explore the caves and wear a sword instead of a walking stick. And of course, 
Only then can the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy happen because Baggins finally said yes to this call to go on a great adventure. See, this is what I imagine. I don't imagine God showing up now. This is so important. And saying to us on a day like this, hey, I'm upset at you. I'm angry at you. You don't seem to be caring about what I care for. You don't seem to be working on what I work for. You better get with it. You better accept your responsibility. I just, I'm a little ticked off at you. I don't think that God comes to us uh, religion does, but God doesn't with that kind of condemnatory thing. I rather picture God showing up and saying, I want you to come and join me in a great adventure. I have such plans for you. See, that's what I imagine. God saying, Hang around and let me give you a sense of what I'm up to in the world. Let me tell you what I care about. Let me, let me help you discover the work that I've called you to do in this world. Come and join me in a great adventure. See, that's what God said to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God shows up and says to Abraham, I mean, why Abraham? He's just one guy in the whole world. Nobody can understand why God called him. Nobody's ever figured it out. But for whatever reason, God did, just like nobody can figure out why he called you or me or you. I don't know. He just shows up and says, Abraham, I want you to go to a city that you don't even know where it's at, but I'm going to show you. And Abraham says, okay. And then God says, I will bless you, 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 I will bless you. I'm gonna bless the whole world through you, Abraham. See, that's how I picture God showing up in our lives. Come and join me in what I'm doing. I, 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 I read a, a, a kind of an unusual book, I guess for me, over the last few weeks, Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. It's interesting in a lot of ways, but one of the things Ferris says, and I agree with completely, I think it actually speaks to the heart of God, is, is that the opposite of happiness isn't sadness. The opposite of happiness is boredom. And some of us are just living boring lives. And I hope on a day like today to wake up something tookish in you, see. Now, finally, and I guess I have to save this for coming weeks if, if I can get back to it. Part of what happens when we engage in a great adventure is that we face adversity that we wouldn't face if we weren't trying to join with God to do something great. And lo and behold, if that isn't part of what God's trying to do in our lives. See, part of the problem of the nice, quiet, little, boring life where we're not ever going out and acting in faith to try to change things in the world around us is that we don't have the privilege of facing adversity for the kingdom of God. And, 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 and when that happens, we, we, we are less than, not more than. Part of how God grows us and causes life to be everything he meant it to be is he allows us to face challenges. In coming weeks, I hope to refer back to a book that I highly recommend to every parent and especially every educator in this room. It's a book many of you would be familiar with. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's in a very well-written, well-researched uh, uh, work from people with no political or religious agenda, just studying the facts, trying to understand why, uh, um, how should I say this, trying to understand the fragility 
that's expressed on especially many of the college campuses in our world where, where, where kids can't even hear an opposing view uh, without feeling unsafe. And, and I could go on and on and on. It's not the time, but I, but I intend to come back to this. And they, they, they're very careful to say it's not the kid's fault, it's society's fault. Because we, we have fallen into an overprotectiveness that never allowed kids to get out and get dirty and play and take any risk and, you know, try anything that might, oh, who knows what may. And so, so, so we're, we're, we're a society of coddlers, and what coddling produces is something that's not good for the coddled. And I'm, listen, God is not a coddler. That's my point today. And I just lost some of you because now your mind's going all kind. Let's come back to this. God is not a coddler. God is not interested in you living a trouble-free life. Study the story of Scripture. And person after person who responded to the call of God had to fight even for God's promises because this is part of how God shows his grace to us. He gives us something great to fight for. It's like... It's like, it's like being in the, I'm closing that, like being in the American Museum of History years ago. I'm sure all of us have been there. And there's a, there's a replica. I've never heard of this before. I've learned it's pretty common, but I didn't know about it. There's a replica of what's called a dodo bird. You know what a dodo bird is? It couldn't actually be a dodo bird because dodo birds are extinct. So it's someone made something to look like a dodo bird. Dodo birds were birds who lived some island, some place where there were no predators. And over time, they, they, they stopped growing wings and stopped needing to fly and they got fat. And then, then some, some people moved to the island who brought, I think, I don't know, uh, dogs or something who like dodo birds and dodo eggs and before long because the dodo birds could no longer fly to escape the predators well fat wingless dodo birds became extinct to which I say as kindly as I can don't be a dodo <laughs> I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings but I'm not a coddler either don't forget how to fly don't forget how to live the life God dreamed for you because God's blessing God's blessing is attached to you joining God in his great adventure <laughs>